Okay. Doesn't seem that long ago since I saw you last. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's uh, more self. <laughs> Less, John. Pardon? Less. That's oh, all. <laughs> where, where was that said? <laughs> Less is more. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit more about self and then we'll look at dependent origination. And make a start on dependent origination. We certainly won't finish it all in the time we have available today. Um, but I want to look at that, how it functions, how the mess is created, and actually look at something that we only touched on, we only touch on very rarely actually as teachers, which is transcendent dependent origination. Another form of dependent origination, which is actually used for getting out of the problem. Okay, so going back to the self. I know it's kind of laboring the point a bit, um, but this is so fundamental to any retreat, any um, approaches to emptiness that we might take. And it is absolutely essential, as I've kept stressing to you so far, that we get it right. We understand what, in a sense, is being negated in this whole process. Right at the outset, I just want to say yet again, it's not no self. It's this process. What is being negated is the idea of fixity. Anything fixed. So if you want to talk about no self, there is no fixed self. So actually what the self is, is plastic. It's malleable. It's something that's arising and falling in different forms. It's throughout our lifetime, actually, if you want to talk about rebirth, we're reborn many times as many, many, many different selves yeah, through our lives. And sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done this, you kind of look back at periods of your life and say, oh, it's a different self then, yeah. or it's rather different. Um, so we are mutating, transforming throughout our lives. What we have is a picture, rather than of one thing being carried through this whole thing, which is your essential element, essentially who you are, your true self, or an Atman, to use the Sanskrit term, or anything of this form, what you have is continuity. Yeah. The image that's often used in, in conveying this is, as I say, not one thing, but a series, you know, if, you take, if you take a candle and have a series of candles and you keep lighting it and take the next one and you light that and you take the next one and light that, is it the same flame? No, it isn't. But it's a continuity of candles being lit. Equally, when we start talking about the process of the self, what we've got is a series of events which are unfolding, dependent on causes and conditions. Yeah. What we're saying is nothing happens to us without causes and conditions. We don't come into being without causes and conditions. How we are at any particular moment, mentally, physically, is sustained by causes and conditions. When those causes and conditions alter, we will change. Yeah. When the causes and conditions which uphold our physical existence are exhausted, death occurs. Yeah. 
So, you know, there isn't this one thing. So, when we start talking in Buddhist psychology about the self, we're also we're talking about a model of the human mind and a model of the human body, which is a constant stream of constructed moments. This is what we are, a constant stream of constructed moments, arising and falling in experience, happening in extremely rapid succession. You know? Giving the illusion, for example, when we think about the mind, when we think about consciousness, when we think about it as really being something stable, almost static, because it's happening so quickly. I can't remember if I did this the other night, but I often use the illustration of a of a piece of cinema film. You know, cinema film is constructed out of little separate frames. Whir it around quickly enough and you get the illusion of movement. You get the illusion of something happening here. And the same with mind and body, particularly mind here. We think of the mind as being some kind of substantial thing because it's happening so fast. Hence the reason again for awareness, mindfulness, as we talked about last night in the question that was asked to be able to slow the process down and to actually see what some of those little frames are constructed of, what's within the frames. Much of our experience is happening so quickly, isn't it, and you'll see this when we get to dependent origination as well, that we don't see, for example, the arising of tanha, we don't see the arising of craving. And craving, let me just define it even before we get there here, Craving is a craving to avoid as well as the craving to have something. You know, to craving to maintain something. We're always in sangsaric state craving. Yeah? The word tanha literally means in Pali, it means a un, an unquenchable thirst. Literally by its nature we can never be satisfied if we're driven by desire or craving because as we've probably all noticed the very things you want to avoid generally happen <laughs> yeah, the things that you don't want to happen they arise and we can't avoid them you know, often the things that we want to maintain and stabilize and have in our lives drift and fall apart yeah. however the craving is ceaseless in that it's always it's always attempting to avoid and have, avoid and have. It's a pretty limited range of experience, actually, a lot of it. <laughs> if you think about it, driven by craving, yeah, there's not a lot of freedom in it. Yeah, so the mind itself is this constant movement that's happening so quickly in this rapid succession of mind moments. So Buddhist psychology is always talking about mind moments, not the mind. You know, the mind is a, is a kind of generic term. When we start breaking it down and looking at it, we start seeing it constructed out of mind moments. Now this idea, in a way, of construction, causes, events, successions of things, is something that runs the whole way through early Buddhism. Because obviously, if there's a series of connected events, there can't be anything stable within it. In fact, you could use a word and say the mind is empty. You know, that doesn't mean it doesn't have any content, there isn't anything going on, but it's empty of any fixity. It's empty of any stability. It's 
empty, let's use the big one that comes in particularly when you start talking about Mahayana Buddhism, it's empty of any intrinsic existence. Yeah. So, first use of, you know, of the word emptiness here, I mean there's a lot of synonyms used for this, nothingness, emptiness, voidness, these are all used to translate basically either the Pali or the Sanskrit term, shunyata in Sanskrit, sunyata in Pali. You know, these are all used to try and get a grasp on this. I don't think actually any of them are really that good of translations of it. Um, as I said to you the other night, nothingness is about the closest, but hyphenated. You know, no thingness. Yeah. So it's this lack of intrinsic existence, it's this lack of stability within it. So it's a thing it's a thingness it's a thingness with no thingness. Yes, it's no thingness. Yeah, it's no thingness. It's um it's verb again. So most of the uh, most of the Pali Sanskrit words we're using to describe mental functioning are all verbs. They're not names of things. Um so when we start breaking it down, what we're doing is breaking. I'm not going to take you very far into this because you can break it down into finer and finer and finer processes. Yeah. All of them lacking substance. All of them lacking that thingness. Yeah. So, so is the constructed self kind of like the gluten that holds this all together? Is that well, it's, it's, it's held together. There's not really a glue that holds it together. It's a series of events which are all interacting. So yeah. it's only those... But then when we self, and yeah. we, it's this picture of this glue that we've put onto it all together. Yes, but it's, it's again, it's the insertion of something within it that isn't there. Yeah, yeah. We're trying to whole, literally hold ourselves together here in, in thinking in terms of identity when there is only continuity now this is a reflex thing and we're not bad people for doing this or anything of that sort it's just a reflex reaction that come, and I'm going to describe how it comes about a little bit in many ways, although I'm not doing the formal dependent origination, this is showing how the self is dependently originated. You know, the, the notion of a self is a dependent arising. Now we've seen one version of it, which is the khandas or the skandhas, um, how any notion of the self is dependent on all those five factors, each arising independent on each other. The latter one we had quite a bit of a discussion about. Consciousness does not arise without any of the other factors, for example. Yet consciousness seems, um, perhaps for many people, to be the most obvious choice for being the true nature of who and what we are. Yet that only arises in dependence on something else. Does this make sense? Yeah. I don't want to lose you at this stage. Are you saying that... Um that the, in order to have the illusion of self, all of those kindness have to arise together? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, we're constructed out of psychophysical events which are happening. You know, and the focus mainly, obviously, in Buddhism, although there is quite a bit of focus in some forms of Abhidhamma, 
on the physicality side of it as well. But mostly when we're looking at any, any, anything, we're talking about a series of events happening. So when, again, we come to consciousness, well, what we're talking about is episodes of consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> I was joking, I'm having another episode of consciousness. <laughs> In fact, I'm having serial episodes of consciousness. You know, that's really what's happened, rather than it being some static phenomenon that's kind of lying there in the background as a mirror for everything. So it's continuity, continuity and change in Buddhist psychology are accounted for by sankharas. Now, remember this fourth aggregate that we spent quite a bit of time looking at. Um, it's a technical term and has quite a lot of meaning, so I've given you one. Um, part of it is, well, is decision, intention and choices. So intentions, chetana, are all part of the aggregate of sankharas. Okay. Decisions, volitions, choices. Yeah. All of those are, are in some sense are wrapped up with the with the notion of an intention. Okay. So during every moment of experience one function of the mind is to make decisions. Yeah. In every moment of experience. So this is something that arises with every moment of experience. Out of the seven factors that have to arise with every moment of consciousness, there is change in that. We are always involved in intentional activity. Yeah. Now, whether those are conscious intentions or ones which are not unconscious, I'm going to move away from that term, but are non-conscious intentions. The moment I start talking about unconscious intentions, it sounds like there is the unconscious, a kind of Freudian um, you know, the thing, that, you know, affair which is talked about throughout psychoanalytic thought. So there are conscious intentions and there are non-conscious intentions. What's the example of a non-conscious intention? It could be almost anything. You know, it could be um, an intention... You know, <laughs> Um, something slips out, the parapraxies that you get in Freud, you know, something slips out and you say something you didn't intend to say you know, to somebody. Yeah. So very good slippages in speech are a very good example of non-conscious intentions. Yeah. Doing something and you think to yourself even about doing something. Where did that come from? Just, <laughs> just even asking the question, that would be a non-conscious <laughs> intention. Could be, yeah. 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 That's right. Well, but, but, you know, how did I, what did I, what was I thinking? What was I thinking about, yeah. yeah. Now, we're used to the idea that, of course, that intentions always have to be conscious. I think psychoanalytic thought in the West actually introduced, obviously, the idea of unconscious intentions. There's an awful lot going on. Well, Buddhism had that idea a long time ago, <laughs> that there is something non-conscious, yeah, something that we're not conscious of at this moment. It doesn't mean it isn't conscious, then. So, this part of the function of the mind is to make decisions involved in volitions. It doesn't necessarily mean, and we spoke a little bit about this on the first night, came up, I think, as a question, that there is a free agent here, <clears throat> outside of a network of causes and effects. So, we are a bundle, a nexus of causes and effects, effectively. 
So just because we're decisions, just because we're involved in making decisions, it does not mean that someone makes them. <laughs> it's an interesting move. You're always going to say, I, I made that decision. Well, kind of the decision arose. <laughs> Where does it arise from? Pardon? Where does it actually arise from? It in, arises from this complicated um, affair of cause and effect working together, involved also with objects. So the process? It's a process again. The process is making the decision. Yeah, so that's right. It's for a lot of it, we seem, feel as if we have choice. In many cases, it makes, in a lot of cases, it makes no sense to really talk about choice. Yeah. We were talking the other day, or Isabel was talking about the cessation of volitional activity. Yeah. I remember on a retreat having something on my mind, uh, I don't know, my mind was pretty open anyway, and it seemed like it seemed like the mind naturally responds to something. Like if you're walking along and you see dog shit, you naturally walk around it. You don't yeah. have to think about it. That's right. So I, I accept that there's, uh, there's courses and conditions and that there's this kind of stream of connected events. But it also seems in moments like that, or like when you're driving. Driving is a very good example, mm. I think, really. This is, we'll use some uh, young word again, this, but Prajna. You're driving along and something, you know, drove around the corner, someone came at me and you immediately, you take it. If you're there, you would take an intelligent response. Yes. So, um, but it's a trained response. True. It's arising out of causes and effects, arising out of cause and condition. Mm. But what yeah. about the right effort? Right effort? Yeah. Yeah. It's training. But it's a training, yeah. It's exactly that. It's a training. Conscious intention. Yeah. But it's a training, but at each moment... There is that choice whether I'm going to mm. go into the wholesome or the animal. It certainly feels like that. I don't want to labour this point because I don't think it's a big issue, really, ultimately, in talking about whether we are free agents or we're not free agents. All I'm trying to give you the picture of is of a lot of effects working, you know, causing effects working together in this complex process, which we're not going to go into in, in terribly much detail, but a complex process. And so a lot of the things that we think we're actually making choices about, we're not actually making choices about at all. So in a tra I think a trained response is a very good idea, because when you get skilled, you know, and I think the one that Bruce gave was very good, you know, tr driving, it's a trained skill. You know, to read what's ahead, it's not arising out of nowhere. There's not suddenly a free agent popping up, saying, I'm going to make a choice about this. Yeah. Still, e even if you're trained, and, and obviously, it still takes some kind of um, awareness or something. I mean, you know, if, if you were kind of on a mobile phone or something at the moment, you, you know, you'd crash, wouldn't you? So that there's still, it seems to me, some kind of intelligence or some kind of awareness which decides to make a trained response at that moment. I, I, yeah. I, don't, think it's a, I don't think it's a convention. You know, the ego is very much bound up with the idea that I'm going to do something. Mm. I'm not saying that at all. It's something quite different. But it feels like an executive authority. You know, it is mm. the thing. Like the alcoholic, they proverbially don't recognise how come they keep taking a drink. But mm. it's the part of you can say, oh yeah, I, I am doing this. And mm. well, well, the one thing I want to make absolutely clear that chastener is not an executive function. Mm. It's not the executive function that makes this. Yeah, awareness is another factor. 
that can arise with Chaitanya and can direct attention. So, you know, and you could keep adding to this, and you could keep building, you could then build up a picture of how each mental factor will influence each other mental factor. So, okay, intention is not necessarily good enough. The moment you put awareness in intention, perhaps you become a good driver. In memory, because you, yeah. you, some, at some point you learned it for the first time. At some point. Yeah. And you got started that training. Yes. Some place. Yeah. So the memory becomes a particular sankara, which is laid down. You know. I've always been puzzled about the memory seems to have continuity. And where does that, how does that, does that arise moment by moment? It rises moment by moment. We carry yeah. all of them somewhere. There's decision occurring to carry all the memories. There's no, deci- there's, no de- there's no decision occurring at all. It's just going from moment to moment to moment. And that's why... At certain moments, memory, some memories will be shared. Yeah. They will not be present. So there's no storehouse of memory? There's no storehouse. That, that gets much later. That gets really into Mahayana Buddhism. <laughs> that gets into the New York Stock Exchange. There's some memory. Can I ask, I'm just trying to, I'm not sure whether it's, one of these things that can't be fully understood by the human mind, which is why we shouldn't be going into it in too much detail, but the idea that our decisions cannot be in any way um, undetermined by other factors. Mm. And I was just thinking of, if you have a choice of, you have an event starting, you have a totally free choice of when you fly to that event, and the price of the flight's the same, you have no pressing engagements on any days, mm. so you would seem like you have a completely free choice to choose mm. when you want to go. Um, but I was just thinking, is would, would the conditions that are leading to that choice be something like you're either the type of person that likes to arrive somewhere fully prepared, or you leave yeah. things to the last minute, or... Could be so even though you think that's a free choice, actually it's determined by the type of person you are, your upbringing. Right. Is that yeah? Is that that's, what we're a, getting to? that's a way of looking at it. In other words, you've got conscious intentions of which you are, you know, making your choices, as you say. But there are also non-conscious intentions which are driving that. I like to arrive early before everything. So it's a mental formation. It's the mental. Formation. These are mental formations. All of this is accounted for by the sankharas. By the functioning of the sankharas. I believe that uh, modern psychologists also can't find anything which makes a choice. Mm. Susan Blackmore was quite a interesting psychologist. Oh yes, Susan. Just <laughs> yes, we had a very we had a very nice uh, um, event with uh, Susan at, at Sharpen about four years ago, three four three years ago, with Stephen Batchelor, Guy Claxton, uh, Susan, and myself. We're all in debate about free will. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, good. So it's, not just here. so it's not just here. No, no, it's certainly and not just. The same as you, or uh, we basically came to a decision, and certainly Susan came to a decision. I think it's a pretty fair one. It doesn't really matter. It's just so it's like uh, whether there is a beyond or not. It's just right. not useful. Exactly. And it's not a matter of right. well, deciding one way or the other. That's right. It's ultimately nothing really hinges on it. On whether okay. the, on the, so whether we should present it that way. Because I think it's very confusing to just make statements like, you know, there is no 
free agent. I'm sorry, I said there doesn't have to be a free agent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> have you consulted a lawyer before coming here? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, allegedly. <laughs> it doesn't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I mean, what, what, is, what is actually so interesting about this, and I don't think you heard me saying that I'm involved with um, doing this stuff in Oxford, is actually a lot of the neuroscience these days is confirming a lot of this. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's quite startling, um, some of the things. I mean, it's been a big learning curve for me because it's not my area at all, but actually understanding how the brain works and the way a lot of this neuroprocessing goes on. Again, they're not talking about free agents <laughs> at all. But at the same time as you do meditation, well, so it becomes a, it's not you're doing really, and you experience a, well, you experience a kind of unification, whether it's, whether it's achievable or not amongst these things. And, and then you actually have an experience, you experience freedom. And, 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 and <coughs> precisely, precisely in the band, you know, there's a big thing about um, the great way it's not difficult, it simply avoids picking and choosing. And the ego is so committed to making those. Mm. And, and oddly enough, when you abandon picking and choosing, there seems to be an experience of complete freedom. You know, you can. Mm. I mean, that's how it feels. And, and uh, it, it's, mm. it's an interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> I always think of it as being, I don't know, the supermarket dilemma. You walk into a supermarket and you have so much choice, you can't choose anything. Mm. <laughs> it does, seems the very opposite of freedom. Mm. In much, you know, so Because we just simply have, you know, with this feeling that we have of having free choice, what do I choose? You know, which piece of music shall I listen to? You know, what shall I do? Um, we almost stultify ourselves by you know, the idea that we are completely free agents in, in doing this. So if you're awakened, how do you make a choice? How do you make that choice? Um, because it's, it's a response to a situation arising spontaneously. This is the way it's often described. I, I, I would say it's an intelligent response. Maybe it's a bee in my body, I have to get rid of it one day, but I think it's an intelligent response. Yeah, I don't, no, I don't deny that. I mean... Yeah. Because the one thing that is there, I mean, you use the Sanskrit term, but in the term in the early text is panya. There's insight. This word is horrifically usually translated as wisdom, which I really think is awful because it's static. Whereas actually the word prajna or panya actually means insight or understanding of something. So you have insight into a situation. You have understanding of a situation. And if you have insight and you're understanding, you know how to act. At that moment. At that moment, yeah. This um, nexus of cause and effect, it seems to be, in the continuity, one of the things that continues seems to be, I don't know, that it's trying to take care of itself or maintain itself or protect itself. That's right. That's exactly what's happening. There is, out of the seven factors that arise with every moment, there's something called the life faculty. Jivatindriya. There has to be that spark which is trying to hold us together within each consciousness moment to protect, to, you know, it's um, primitive mechanisms, a lot of it. It, it wants to continue, or it's set up to continue. What's the yeah. clue that, 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 that you're saying that 
keeps that bundle of cause and effect warming well, it, to, to maintain itself. Well, again, well, it, again, that is just one fact. There is no glue. I mean, this is this is the yes. thing. You're all looking for glue mm -hmm. here to hold it all together, <laughs> and really, it is only if you, if you think of the brain itself. You know, it is a series of synaptic events. That is it. You know, in other words, all firing in different ways. So, when one experience, a whole area of the brain and those synapses will light up in a particular thing, showing interaction between them all. Now, I don't want to push that too far, but I mean, there's a sense that's what's actually happening in all of our psychic events. It's literally, if you want another, if you do want a metaphor, the metaphor of the net is a, a useful metaphor. But I think actually, these days, synaptic events is probably a better one. Yeah. So, uh, John, is the part of usually translated as Yeshe, then? That's right. So, so that's sort of the end of the static. Yeah, that's right. It becomes static. I think that's a great problem with it. Uh, you've turned again a verb into a noun. So what we're getting rid of in the conventional understanding, it seems, is, is the notion that I, am, I know what to do, or I'm going to make a choice. That, that's what's being left out of this, isn't it? There's a flow of causes and additions, uh, maybe associated with the insight, and then there's some response. But, you can, but what's left out is that conventional yeah. idea of the consumer, the, the, which is the bastion of our democracy, isn't it? The idea yeah. that we can make a choice. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it actually goes back to very old times. In, in ancient Greece, they used to have the idea there was a little person sitting in your head. A homunculus? The homunculus in the head. Mm. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's kind of getting rid completely of that idea of that, that kind of little person. You know, that executive function or whatever that's controlling the whole lot, the, the pilot behind um, who's doing all the driving or the steering of, of it. I think about that little <laughs> <laughs> So the, the problem, you know, the, the innate wisdom, I'm just thinking about when you're awakened, that, that is essentially where you go to. You don't go there. The decision comes from there comes from when it. when you need to make a decision. And I think the discussion that we were just having about whether that has intrinsic existence or not is one that doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, everybody has that innate wisdom once they're awakened and it's like <laughs> a step, like emptiness. It's like a going into almost going into metaphysics. So it doesn't matter. The fact is everybody has that experience of the decision-making process becoming natural and heartfelt rather mm. than sort of chronically in the mind. Yeah, and guided, by, and guided by other factors as well. So it's not just the case of panya, it's panya arising with, for example, metta or karuna, with compassion, with kindness. You know, these are also factors which have been... You know, uh, there's a lovely phrase in Tibetan which says, you know, um, panya or you know, wisdom without compassion is simply hard and brutal. Compassion without wisdom is sloppy. <laughs> you, know, you need the two arising together. Now, actually, I mean, that's a very simplistic way of putting what's actually going on in, in early Buddhism, saying actually there's a lot more going on, and they all need to rise together to have a response to a situation. Yeah. Let, me, let me move on a little bit. I'm going to kind of draw a line under, under questions just for a few minutes because otherwise I won't cover the material I want to do with you today. 
So during every moment of mind, moment of experience, one function of the mind, only one function of the mind, is to make decisions. It doesn't necessarily, coming back to the... Okay, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a free agent working in there, outside of this network of causes and effects. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that at all. Just because decisions are being made doesn't mean that someone's making them. Yeah, it's just reiteration of what I was saying before. There's no executive intention. <coughs> is in a sense is just in a, a function of selecting between competing drives, you know, between competing motivations, competing goals. That's all it's doing. Values. You could have <coughs> an enormous list of things that it's selecting from. That's all. So conscious intentions. Let me just make this one very explicit. Sometimes decisions are made as a, as a result of the process of conscious weighing of options. Yeah? Exploring alternatives. Considering consequences. Um, process can take time. Yeah? Or it could be instantaneous. It could be a very rational process thinking through, so it could involve the higher brain functions, or it could be an entirely intuitive process. It doesn't have to be, you know, it can be one or the other, it doesn't matter. Now, non-conscious intentions. Much of the time, decision-making occurs without clear consciousness. You know, we've said this, I'm just, again just really saying it in a more formalised way, which is to say without, it's occurring without conscious awareness or a, sub a subjective sense of making a decision. Yeah. I go through the door and I don't actually make a decision about it. I'm obviously making a decision on a non-conscious basis when I open the door and step through it. Just so, awful lot, as I suggested to you, the, I can't remember which night it was now, um, but one of the talks I gave or one of the questions I answered, that an awful lot of what we do in the world is actually non-conscious. And actually, it's non-conscious decisions. So you could call them unconscious, subconscious, pre-conscious. It doesn't really matter what language you use. I prefer non-conscious because it, it gets awakened from sort of Freudianism. Um, so intentions is one part of this notion of the plasticity of self. The second is activity, yeah, which is action. And the moment we start talking about action, again we invoke this word, which is mis much misunderstood, karma. Yeah, I deliberately use the Sanskrit. Yeah. So, once a decision is made, it's put into action. And it's put into action in one of three, or in three modalities, basically. Body, speech, mind. Yeah. Body <coughs> is the initiating... <clears throat> physical action through motor function. You know, we act. I make a decision to pick up my cup yeah, and drink from it. Speech. Um, well, we can speak openly um, or we can talk to ourselves, <laughs> which is happening a lot of the time. <laughs> or simply form words as mental images as well. Sometimes we'll think in images, which is actually still related to language. Yeah. Then, finally, mind. 
And that includes all thinking, conceptualizing, remembering, imagining, all mental activity. So all mental activity is karma. Then the third sense of what we're talking about here is dispositions. And these are the sankharas. Now, actually, I've taken a long time to get to it, but this is actually my preferred translation of this word. They're dispositions. Formations is technically accurate, but they are dispositions. It's the, it's the third aspect of what actually is involved in sankharas in general. So, just to get this clear, if everybody isn't clear about this. Initially we started talking about sankharas, and I said it's composed out of a number of things. It has a technical word, it's composed out of a number of things. The first is intention, the second is activity, and the third focuses on sankhara directly, which is disposition. So everything that is involved in that are intentions, activities, and dispositions. In a way, this is the end result of the previous two. What a disposition. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, these can be seen as personality traits as well. Um, character. Yeah. Sort of a trace. Yes, it is. So dispositions are created as a residue. Yeah. Consequence of all actions. Uh, so... Let's think about this. Since I was born, I haven't, you know, I've been engaging in actions continuously. You know, less thinking when I'm younger. You know, more thinking as you get older. You know, a lot of physical activity, a lot of mental activity, a lot of speech activity. And all of this has formed me into the character who I am now and who you are in the result of your life. So it's kind of, it's, it's your past history. It's all in this. Cumulative. It's cumulative. That's very cumulative. Does that, does that require memory also? or? Well, memory is part of this, yeah. Because I'm just wondering about people who think you lose their memory but still have the same personality. Like somehow that accumulation is still yeah. having its impact. Yeah, I mean, memory is, is a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition, so other conditions will also be there. So dispositions are created as a residue, basically, the consequence of all of our actions. So personality, character, or generally, and this is the whole point I've been trying to get to, what we call the self, is made up of layers. It's layered. And what we're engaging in, um, and I'm going to use a Christian term here, but I think you know what I mean, um, what we call... You know, the process of unravelling is like archaeology of the soul. <laughs> you know, you start off perhaps having to trowel out pretty heavy stuff, and it gets more and more subtle as you go down through the layers of it. So there are layers of dispositions which are laid down throughout your lifetime. <coughs> Some of them very deep because they go back to childhood. Some of them more recent because of what you did yesterday. And they're more directly observable. Is it not too worry, though, that the dispositions are also reinforcing Yes, that's right. And then you're constantly mm-hmm. recreating them. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're getting it. That's exactly what's going on. So that's why they're... You know, remember I gave the initial thing when I talked about the Kandas? I said they were both formed and forming. So you said exactly that, except not in those words. 
you know, that it's having an effect continuously. Yeah. So, there is a, um, a condensing of our sense of temporality here. Yeah. Past is not past, because it's still having an effect now. It's having an effect on the present, which is moulding the future, which is coming out. Yeah. As some of you I know have heard me say before, you know, as you sit here on your cushions or on your chairs, you are your past, your present and your future. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're, yeah. This is why why awareness and mindfulness are so important because it's always like this constant feedback loop that we're getting from all of our activities. We're not separate from our actions. We're not separate from our actions. No. We're constantly feeding back in. We're constantly reinforcing. You know, we we. If you, it's a very crude way of putting this, but it's like we're constantly testing the world and then getting a reaction back, which we incorporate. It's a very good word because it means embody. I mean, you literally incorporate it into us. Yeah. So all this, you know, when, you're, when you say something to somebody and they react in a particular way, then that's incorporated. And the saying, the sounds and so on, and your understanding of the sounds and what you're doing, then, that's you too, that activity it's not just the words are out and you're what's inside. That's right. The activity is you too. Yes. The activity is most definitely you too. Yeah. So every moment of experience has potentially created a unique disposition. It's scary, isn't it? If you think about that. Yeah. Every moment of activity that we've, cre- you know, we've engaged in in our lives has created a unique disposition. Which is there. Now, okay, some of them will accumulate, they will conglomerate as dispositions. Yeah, what we would call personality or character traits. Habits. Habits, yeah. yeah. The poet Rilke has a wonderful phrase, it was the habit that moved in and didn't leave. <laughs> yeah. And it's so easy to create a habit, isn't it? So easy to create a habit. Engage in it once, it becomes easy to do it the second time, and when you've done it the second time, you've got a habit. In a good way, though. I mean, I'm starting Sometimes. to get really depressed here. In this oh, dear. Here. oh my god, I'm just going to stay on my, my uh, personal treadmill, you know. But the fact is, is we can we we have that element of choice to to There's begin some, making new habits. Something can be done about it by creating new habits and good habits. <laughs> I wish I'd all said this myself, but it was somebody, uh, I can't remember who said it to me, but I know it wasn't me, but somebody described once saying sangsara to me as one vast bad habit. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting um, even to see it happen here. You know, here I'm removed from my normal habits mm. and put into this environment where yeah. it's all, you know, Sense in some way sensory deprivation, yeah. and I form habits here. Yes, yeah, you'll form I new form ones. Here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
habits are again about control and security we form them to condense our world in a particular um, to a degree but the point and this is if you like let's get away from the misery then <laughs> the point is to actually form useful habits you know, if, 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 as that phrase goes, sangsara is one vast bad habit, then <laughs> nibbana is a much better habit. <laughs> yeah. In other words, it's, it's, it's creating wholesome, creative things rather than misery and pain out of the world. Yeah. Okay. So, we're creating these dispositions. Um... In practice, actually, some moments, for example, traumatic, euphoric, revealing moments of experience are far more influential than others. So if you look back through your catalogue of your history, some moments are actually much, much more powerful, much, much more influential in forming who you are. Now, <clears throat> going back, and this is kind of the concluding part of this, this is just another level of analysis, which is really... That the self, therefore, is a bundle of dispositions. That's what it is. The self is simply a bundle of dispositions. And the consequence of that is, and here we get into the emptiness again, that the self is impermanent. We're constantly changing from one moment to the next. A lot of time we don't notice it. But there's change being affected. Yeah, the moment I'm thinking, the moment I'm engaging, and my thoughts change. Yeah, I am distracted, you know, perhaps from what I'm saying, and the mind moves out in a different way. So it's insubstantial, it's changing. It's changing from one moment to the next. So you've heard me say it. The second point is the self is insubstantial. There is no immutable core or sacred essence We'd like to think there's a nice sacred essence in there, wouldn't we? I, I, for those of you who are familiar with it, I always have this um, idea. Do you remember in Faulty Towers, Basil Faulty looking for the rat in the cake? <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that we're doing that. This is actually what we're engaging in. <laughs> we're trying to, and okay, this is a very technical way, but it's a very practical experience that you're doing. You're, trying, you're actually confirming, in a sense in your meditational practice, that the self is impermanent, it has no substantial core, and it's plastic. It's constantly shaping and reshaping oneself. We're engaging in doing that. Again, if you just think about over your own history, often how we've had different styles, ways of being in our past. And, for example, being here, being in a meditation centre, might be a relatively recent one that I'm engaging in. You know, um, and the past might have been much more hedonistic. You know, and I'm just giving that as, again, a very crude example. So we're reshaping ourselves continuously. How is that done? Through chetana, through intention. Another point is that the, the process is cyclical. Sangsara. It's cyclical. Intentions arise in the context of dispositions... And through the activities, and this is really saying, in a sense, what Harriet's already said, through activities they shape the dispositions, which again influence the formation of intentions. 
So it's this vast feedback loop that we're engaged in. <laughs> it makes a rather horrifying picture. All this debate about the effect of television on children. Mm. And uh, I don't know, no one really seems to come to any conclusion, but I mean, they, they watch thousands and thousands of hours of people shooting each other basically on television and, mm. and then do video games where they shoot each other. And uh, yeah. you know, I'm convinced it does have a serious effect on them, right? I'm absolutely certain it does. Even, even if it doesn't run to the level of actual people engaging, engaging in violence themselves, it's going to have a, an effect on the individual, which is a desensitisation, a desensitisation process. And that's just at the ground level, if nothing else ever comes of it. I actually think that's true of an awful lot of things that we engage in, like watching horrifying pictures constantly on news reports. For example, this can have a desensitising process. You know, once you've seen one disaster, you've seen them all. No, and I'm not joking about that. I'm kind of making that as, as what actually is often going on in our minds. Yeah. So we become desensitised to it. Now, may I get to the point of contention? I know which has been rising so much this morning, which is our actions are neither wholly free nor are they wholly determined. Now, we often like to go on to the free bit, but um, you know, to get away from the determiners, and they're neither wholly free nor wholly determined. And why is that? Because it's a middle way. Understanding, actually, that experience and the way that we action is shaped is far more complex than either the deterministic model, everything is determined, or the complete freedom model, that everything is free. You know, they are shaped by powerful antecedent conditions, which are the dispositions. They're also responsive to moderating influences, which are the intentions. So it's being formed out of those two activities. And this is coming back really full circle to where I started on the first night, which is the critical factor in all transformation, therefore, is intention. That's the critical factor. And so out of this plasticity of the self, which we are rather than being the self, the definite article, this plastic moulding, reshaping that we're going through in the ways I've described, out of all the activities that we engage in, intention is the most important one. So this is, it really, really does in practice <clears throat> mean examination of intention as much as we possibly can to try and make perspicuous to ourselves what those intentions are. Now, I've suggested to you, and I suggested it on the first night, it's a as a really good practice, is each time you sit, not for vast amounts of time, but to think what your intention behind the sitting is. You know, why am I here, what am I engaging in, you know, and what for, in the service of what? Would you say there's a degree of randomness in what selves or self and pops up? I wouldn't say so much randomness. It's, you know, if, if something appears to be occurring random, it usually means that there's a logic or a causal conditionality to it that we can't understand, you know, rather than that it's occurring randomly. I don't think, um, in many ways, that 
that this model occur, you know, really saying things occur randomly. They just occur. Everything arises because of a cause and condition. Sometimes they're just so complex it's very difficult to understand. If you think about the, the nexus, the, the complex nets and webs of activity that we've embedded in here, no wonder it's so that some things appear as if they occur randomly. We just really can't understand completely. Now, we don't need to understand completely. We need to understand what is necessary for transformation. Yeah. But it's all, there's also a huge amount of interdependency in this. Yes, that's exactly it. It's interdependency. It's very interdependent. Yes. Even though I'm staying in the hermitage and I'm supposed to be a hermit, I'm not a hermit <laughs> in this world. Yeah, right? yeah. So I make my decisions and my based on my intentions and all of that, but I'm living and functioning with other people. Yes, yes. We we are not we're not isolated, and this is coming. This this will come out much more forcefully when we start to look at the more socialized aspect. I think the, the, the one real thing I think that Mahayana Buddhism for me really brings to this is that sense of interdependency. It's there implicitly in early Buddhism but it's really brought out explicitly in terms of you know, the development of the Mahayana and some of the writers and thinkers in the Mahayana. Yeah. So we are dependent on others. Yeah. They are equally dependent on us for certain things. Too. So, the self. <laughs> John, while we're sort of on the Mahayana, can you sort of say something briefly about the, the mere I and the self? And the sort of, or, or doesn't that really bear any particular sort of relevant, relevance or helpfulness to it? Well, I think we'll, we'll certainly, well, I'm not kind of fudging the question or dodging the question. I think what we'll do is we'll look at that when we get to looking at Mahayana thought, because I think it becomes very there, very much there, when we start talking about conventions and when we start talking about so-called reality, you know, these two levels of truth, which I know you're very aware of. Um, so I think we'll pick it up there, because I think it will have more direct relevance than that. Now, just to finish off this section on self, and perhaps I'll see how you feel. We'll either continue a bit longer or we can open up for questions. This is what the Buddha says about the self. I think you might get the impression he doesn't like it very much. <laughs> <laughs> this is a quote from the Sangyutta Nikaya. Some of you have heard it before, I know. He who imagines is bound by Mara. He who does not imagine is freed from the evil one. I am... This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. This I am. This is an imagining. I shall be. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. Embodied shall I be. Formless shall I be. I shall be conscious. I shall be unconscious. Neither conscious or unconscious shall I be. This imagining is a disease. Imagining is an abscess. It's a barb. <laughs> I am is an agitation. <laughs> I'd love that. I am is a palpitation. <laughs> I am is a delirium. And above all, I am is finally a conceit. <laughs> What's the exact reference for that? It's Sangyutta Nikaya 4, uh, verses 133 to 134. 
So I think you get the impression. <laughs> Would you post that one on the board? Uh, yes, I'll get a copy of it. I'll stick it on the board for you. Yeah. It's very useful. And in particular, that last, I am is an agitation, I am is a palpitation, I am is a delirium, I am is finally <laughs> a conceit. <laughs> you know? In other words, we're quite ill in s- being selves you know, most of the time. Mm. It's a very dysfunctional way of being in the world. Yeah. I think we've killed, is it, something like a hundred, it's a huge, vast number, a hundred billion people have passed, hundred years, and human beings have killed mm. that number. And it's a lot to do with that business of, you know, one person yeah. bumping up against another, one country bumping up against another. Yeah. Well, what, self, really. and I think that's interesting because what actually, I think, nations self as well you know that's, it's the collective psychology which we see written into individual psychology that often comes together so if there is fear in the individual that fear is usually there within nationhood you know, whatever that you know, nation is you know, with, where there is um, violence in the individual there will be violence manifest within the society and so on and so forth. I mean, you could extrapolate this across. Really, I think social psychology is nothing but a reflection of individual psychology. That's all. Now, we have, I leave you the option here, because it, we have, I have spoken for nearly an hour so far, whether to put our toe just into the water of dependent origination or open it up for questions now. So it's... Yeah, you got a choice. <laughs> Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah, of course. Are you able, or presumably, you deal with a lot of people and you see a variety in all of us. When you look at people, are you able to see causes and conditions and dispositions, or do you, like most of us, see a, quote, individual, self, someone that we pigeonhole or label? I mean, can, mm. you, can you do to others what you're describing that we need to learn to do with ourselves. To a degree. To a degree. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you do that, please? Well, it's, it's a training, and I think everybody has it, actually. The moment, the moment we decenter ourselves, say, for example, in, in situations where a person is manifesting in one way or another, let's just take an easy way and say angry mode at you. To see that person doesn't mean you can see all the causes and conditions as to why they're angry, but to see that somebody is angry with you or at you, actually, a lot of the time, I tend to think more, actually, again, it's impersonal. Uh, that's the first way. When somebody's angry with you, it's, it, you know, they're not actually angry at you, they're angry because of a whole set of causes and conditions that happen. You just happen to be the object that's standing there at that moment in time or sitting there or whatever. You know, that's the first stage. Then to realise, of course, that actually when it's manifesting, it doesn't arise out of nowhere. There's probably a whole train of circumstances that have given rise to that. You know, a, a bad thing that happened to them you know, that morning or in their past or whatever. Um, so that you begin to, if you like, to pull apart the situation from being so solid. You know, and so when I see behaviour, what I actually see, although I can't obviously directly see, I don't have that kind of power, and very few of us do, 
I can't see all of the causes and conditions that give rise to, but I know that it's dependent on causes and conditions which are completely outside of my control, mostly. Now, some of them might be. It might actually be to, to do with me. And then that requires insight into ourselves in relation to this person. In a lot of circumstances, there isn't. As I say, we're just kind of the, the focus at that moment in time for it. So it's, again, depersonalise the whole process. Now, and I have shared this with quite a number of people, and, and I always remember one of my students at Sharpen, who worked as a mental health nurse, and he actually said, he said, when those patients were getting angry with me and I was reacting, it really escalated the whole situation. So just that one phrase of saying, when somebody's angry with you, it's not personal. He said, just change the whole situation for him. You know, he was able to relate to them and not get caught up in it, get dragged or sucked into the whole process, because that's normally what will happen. We will react, and it escalates. And then, you know, as we all know, probably from interpersonal relationship, things are said and done which you, know, you wouldn't be very happy with you know, when you reflect on it later. And, and I think it's just this dispersonalizing and knowing that what gives rise to that behaviour is causes and conditions and things that I can't see that have given rise to that. Yeah. So you're still left with a decision. So if you can connect it to what we've been... I'd like to have the toe in the water. Okay. As long as it yeah. doesn't yeah. take Thank my you. brain to that Saturn or... Well, it won't, it? because I only intend to do the first two links. Uh, and the second one being dispositions. <laughs> yeah. So I won't go into very long, just to, just to kind of just give you a brief idea. Now, the, f the Buddha gives many, many models of dependent origination. And there are two very specific models. One which is really simple and covers everything, really. He says, this happens, that happens. And actually within the discourse that he does it, you can see him kind of almost gesturing. This happens, that happens. This ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. Yeah. Now what you see there is causal efficacy. Yeah. Dependent on this, that arises. This disappears, that disappears. That again, if you're coming to getting out of the misery <laughs> I've probably painted for you, is actually the whole model of liberation. If there is an understanding of the causes and conditions of how samsara comes about, and I can actually work with and actually eliminate those causes and conditions, then the effect, dukkha, which is the feeling tone of all the samsaric existence, will also disappear. It will drop away. So it's a, it's a model that's based on, you know, the whole model of liberation is based on understanding the causes and conditions that give rise. So the most as you all know, hopefully, your four ennobling truths, you know, the second ennoble truth, actually, the teaching of dependent regulation is an extrapolation of the second of the ennobling truths. So suffering is origin, cessation, and the path, is that? Well, suffering and its cause. Yeah. Dukkha samudhya. Yeah. That we actually, there is a cause to it, and the most identifiable cause is craving. That's the one that's identified. However, in the chain of dependent origination, he gives a bigger picture. That craving is actually f a little bit further down the chain 
you know, down the, 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 the whole way of describing this. Now, I think I gave you the image the other night that dependent origination is actually about dependencies. It's not saying this causes that. It says dependent on this, this arises. Dependent on that, this arises. And it's the idea, the, the model of two things supporting each other. If you get two bundles of corn, prop them up against each other, they will hold each other up. That is, in some senses, how sangsaric existence is generated, by causes and conditions propping each other up. If you pull out one bundle, the whole lot drops apart, if you can do that. So there's also a model for liberation within the model of the problem within this. Now, traditionally, the model, the most explicit model, is 12 links. It's a 12-link model. Interestingly, the Mahanidana Sutta, which is the Sutta in the long discourses of the Buddha, only deals with nine. I think the Buddha just kind of chops and changes it around dependent on his audience. And what he thinks is either a more simple way of putting it across or a more complex. Now, we will look at the 12 links, all in all. And so we start on the 12 links with the problem. It's the ultimate problem. You know, if craving, which is identified as the proximate cause of dukkha, is actually further down the chain, then it can be traced back to something which is right at its beginning. This is a avidya, ignorance. Not actually a term I like very much. Um, it's not, not because it's inaccurate, um, but I actually tend to think of it as being quite insulting. <laughs> you know, quite pe- quite insulting, quite pejorative. Can I take it personally, John? I'm not going to take it personally. <laughs> 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 it's the Greek chorus. <laughs> so... No, you've completely thrown me now, Richard. The reason why the reason why I said that is actually in English sometimes. If you actually said to somebody you're ignorant, um, it's very pejorative, it's very insulting can be to people. Um, and really what you're trying, again, is trying to unpack what you mean by ignorant. And actually, the word which springs to mind more often than not for this is confused. You're in a state of confusion. So, in other words, our ways of dealing with things in the world originate out of a primary state of confusion. Um, it's as if you're kind of dropped into an alien country. You, know, you haven't got a map. All you've got, perhaps, got is, got is the customs of others propping you up, um, guiding you around, and they are also equally confused. This is called life. <laughs> you know, that's really what we've got. We've got confusion, and the generation and the regeneration of confusion, often. Now, this confusion uh, it's the, the, is it's kind of like the, the warp and woof. It's the background behind experience. So, let's put a look at... The, I mean, it all sounds very negative again. I kind of put it on the more positive side. Everybody's trying to do their best. Yeah. But because of confusion, we end up in often making bigger messes than we ever intend. 
because we don't really know how to deal with it wisely or effectively, whatever situation we find ourselves in. So we're trying to, we're almost muddling through. It's called muddling through life. Um, sometimes it's a little less painful than others. Muddling and suffering. Muddling and suffering, yeah. yeah. It's a distressed condition, yeah. often it, that's experienced in that as we muddle our way through life. Mm-hmm. Trying to do the best, but often doing the opposite. Yeah. And I think this is going back again to something that is perhaps fundamental to human beings, that... We do try our best, but <laughs> I often say something happens between leaving the door of your house and getting to where you work. All those good intentions somehow go awry. Um, not always, but a lot of the time in that. Um, because the muddle, the confusion reasserts itself. Yeah, and our intentions get lost uh, within that. So confusion is the problem. And this confusion itself... And, by the way, there are a number of terms in Pali, and they're generally synonyms. And the most common one, for example, is moha or uh, avidya, and they're synonyms. It's either delusion or ignorance, but I think for both here, confusion. I was just thinking when you said something happens between the time we leave, we open the door and leave and go to work or whatever, and that is other people. I could have the best laid plan or intention in my mind about, mm. and then it's someone else. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. You know, some, someone once said to me, I'm always, you're always someone else's traffic jam. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. So it, it's the someone else. Yes. It's in our conflictual relationships often with others. You know, and actually, again, I think this is one of the big advantages that come within Mahayana Buddhism is actually this social side of it. You know, becoming aware that others are not out there just to irritate you. It's someone else's confusion. It's someone else's confusion, yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. And it's self-reinforcing confusion. You're confused, I'm confused. (laughs) We kind of reinforce each other in our confusion, in our delusion. Now, the other thing about it, if I'm going to, if I'm going to continue to use the term ignorance as a translation, because I can't move away from it entirely, um, is to hear it in its proper etymological sense in English, which is to ignore, to overlook. So ignorance, and I think this is, we have to hear it in this way, is not simply about not knowing, it's about not wanting to know as well. Which one is ignorances? Ignorances. Right. And the confusion and the delusion is being generated by this. So there are certain facets of experience, but not, it's not a question that we don't know about them. We don't want to know about them. And th- these are fundamental existential things, such as impermanence, yeah, mortality. Yeah, these are not things we take on board. I mean, I think I, I'm very powerfully struck I can't remember if I said this to you or not. It's very powerfully struck when the Buddha says, when you realize that you are mortal, why would you argue with anybody? Why would you resent them? Why would you engage in conflictual things if you really understood your mortality? Where does he say that? Pardon? I'll look up the reference for it. It's in, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya because that's the only 
text I've got with me at the moment. So it's in there. Yeah. It's yeah. An ama- I've never heard the quotation before. It's an amazing statement. Yeah, it is. Actually, I think that's very interesting. I think psychologically, when you argue, often there's this, you feel you feel you've got to be right, and if you're if you're proved wrong, there's some kind of fear in it. There's mm. some kind of fear of death, or you know, so yeah, it's something to do perhaps with ignorance. It's like conceiving yourself somehow, isn't it? And yeah, and also conceiving conceiving yourself as I mean, I think there's power issues in, involved in that. Um, to lose is somehow to have a mini death. And self. And, and it's self. And it's self, it's, yes. There it is. Yeah. There you are again. Right. <laughs> and on the other hand, if you're reminded of your mortality, uh, what I'm thinking is, is you turn to your compassionate self, mm. the part of you that is compassionate, um, and it's that that engages with another human being. Mm. Or is there another element here that I'm missing? So if you knew your mortality, why would you argue? Mm. If I think that I'm going to die, then I immediately think, and the other person is going to die, so yes. why on earth are we wasting our time having this argument when really it doesn't matter? Mm. Like, is there anything additional to that? No. I think that's it diffuses, if you think about mortality, it would diffuse pretty well every situation that you're so thinking is important at this moment in time, particularly in conflictual mm. situations. And I think that's, you know, the Buddha really is pointing that out very, very strongly. If we take on board our mortality, why would we do this? And that, that life-death thing, uh, well, I'm thinking psychologically, really, but it seems to be so much at the basis of being an ego, this sort of feeling, I have to survive, you know, yeah. I... And this, again, and it's the life faculty that you're running up against. It's running up against the degree of life faculty, but it's about our sense of becoming and constantly becoming. That's what it's running up against, too. The desire for existence. Yeah. Well, that's interesting you say that, because part of the content of, of the ignorance is the desire for continued existence. Yeah. Is that desire for continued ex- existence. So really, fundamentally, I think that we don't, and part of the ignorance is we don't take on board our mortality. And that's be, being self very strongly, because, I mean, I joked about it, I think, the other night, when I said, you know, we can distance ourselves from death and change and everything else. Everything is changing, you know, not me. <laughs> um, everything, you know, one knows that everything is going to die. But again, there's a little voice going, not me, <laughs> within this. And it's really taking that on board incredibly strongly. Taking that odd sense of mortality. Not for morbidity, not for a kind of morbid thinking, but just to, you know, bring as back to situations which normally would end in conflict and that realisation of death would diffuse it. That realisation that this person will not be and I will not be. And it's the I will not be. A lot of fear involved in that too. Yeah, say sometimes you want the other person not to be. Yes. Yeah, but that I, that's that, yes, it, literally again, I mean, that's an interesting statement you've made because I, the I literally wants to obliterate the other. Yeah. It wants to, uh, and that's the thing about being this I, is that it is almost a naturally conflictual relationship with others. When there is selflessness, then you're engaged with others. When there is self, there's very little engagement. You had, I'm not going to go into it again because I went into it the other night. 
So this is coming out of this coming out of this ignorance. Now the ignorance has content, and traditionally with, within the Sutta text it has three things associated with the Abhidharma adds one more to it. So there is what's called asavas. You know, it's this untranslatable word, uh, basically. And uh, I stick with one translation of it because I think it really brings into focus quite strongly what it is. Let me give you the other one. So it's often spoken about as outflows, things that are flowing out of one. It's actually a Jain word. It's borrowed from Jainism. Um, and the Buddha alters the meaning of it. Um, he reverses the direction. In Jainism, they think that you're kept bound to this world by what's flowing into you. And you're kept bound by the Buddha and what flows out of you. Um, so we're not liberated because something is flowing out of us. Effluence. Effluent, that's it. That's my preferred translation. And it's not a terribly... Um, Nice. Nice picture, is it? That's what they're fixing the septic system out. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because the picture is really of something flowing out of us, and it's this effluent that's flowing out of us. So we don't keep our delusion, our confusion, our ignorance to ourselves. It flows out of us. It's a a picture of radical incontinence. <clears throat> in what is coming out. Uh, and so that is one of the things that's coming out, is the ignorance itself, because that's a vijasava. Then there is kamasava, the desire for sensual things that flows out of us. You know, we all want to be have this cushion of nice sensual things around us. Um, then there's desire for continued existence, bhavasava, which flows out of us. And before you get too miserable, there's something else. It's called views, opinions. That's flowing out of us as well. Yeah. Not a very promising start, is it? <laughs> Here, because what you've got is the real content of what is coming out of us. Can you repeat those again? Yeah, sure. Asava. There are asavas, which means this effluent that flows out of us. So there's a vijasava, which is ignorance. There is karmasava, which is sensuality, including sexuality. Then there is bhavasava, which is desire for continued existence. And finally there's ditasava, which is actually the opinions or views. And none of them do we keep to ourselves. So these aren't seen remotely as positive things, then, like sexuality couldn't be positive within this... Context. No, not not in this context. Mm. Not in this context. These are things that literally we don't keep to ourselves. We push them out onto the world, and you can think about that. I and you've only got to see the way that we're craving sensual. Let's leave the sexual issue outside. But we're craving sensuality. Yeah, there's your hand reaching for the next chocolate biscuit, particularly to comfort yourself in certain situations. Um, there's the desire to be. This is the desire for continued existence. I want to be. And this is part of the reason why it's embedded in ignorance, because I don't want to not be. In fact, that's where all the fear arises from, you know, from not being. Um, and this can go down many, many, many layers. You know, It can be desire for continuance. It doesn't have to be a desire for an immortal soul to be continued or anything like that. It can be down literally to your legacy that you leave in the world. Um, 
your good works, your children, anything that you leave in the world. It could even be down to the inscription on your tombstone. Yeah. Um, down to that, you know, what what's left being what's left behind. There's a there's a Tillich, this German theologian. Oh, theologian, reported it. Yeah. Thing which I can't remember exactly at this moment, but something about neurosis is the avoidance of 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 being. You don't allow yourself to fully be who you are because of the fear of non-being, like you're sort of being rejected if you reach out or something. That you, and I think that's so much part of the human condition that we're constantly kind of holding ourselves in. And, mm, yeah. And it's obviously to do with this, this particular thing, this yeah. fear of death. Right? That's right. This contraction and constriction. Which is why we can't fully we sit to let go. Yeah. Well, we can't fully be in this world if we don't take on board the thought of our own not being. So then, what happens is kind of gets uh, tautological. If, it, if, it was, if desire to be is mm. as, an asava, then giving up self mm. is... Well, that's partly the reason. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't know how to hold Well, I mean, I think the fear, you know, a part of the fear that even in practice doesn't allow us really to go deeply into this issue of self and how we're selfing is that somehow we equate it with not being. Yeah. Yeah. Renunciation, giving up things, that's not being as well. So that's why we continue to hold on, why we continue to, you know, to actually hold on to the self at an increasingly deeper level, more subtle level. Yeah, so when I think you've been practicing quite a long time, some of the lo- higher levels of self-grasping disappear, but it comes much, much more subtle. Yeah. That's what we, f- what we tend to find, and I think that's because there is this fear of the sense that somehow you're not going to be if you actually let yourself go into this. But actually, you're moving into into a repleteness, a fullness of being by letting go of this. So, yes, I think it's actually what keeps us bound, even if you've been practicing for a long time. So it's very, very deeply embedded. So that's presumably why the Buddha was saying that thing you just quoted a moment ago about the sense of I am as a canker or whatever it is, because that's that's at least one side of the root of it, isn't it? As long as you hold on to this conceit, you know, Mm. in that conceit you... It's like you've got the puppet by the string, sort of thing. Yep, that's right. We're we're bound, we're tied to it, for as long as that's occurring. I just want to give you, I want to give you a little digression, because it's getting all a little bit heavy at this stage. But I I do a lot of walking when I'm not teaching. I actually love to walk, tramp through countryside, and and, uh, love examining old churchyards. And, you know, I think about the tombstone. Here is one upmanship in death I came across in the tombstone. It really was. It was incredible. I was because I kind of looked at these old inscriptions. There's an inscription. It was in Somerset. It was in the churchyard in Somerset where I was actually looking at this, and it said, "Here lies." And I can't remember the name, but here lies so and so, who was a good, generous, perfect woman throughout the whole of her life, <laughs> unlike the woman in the next grave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about one-upmanship. <laughs> it, w- it was the early 1800s. 
It was the early 80s, about 1828. Was it a church stone? I mean, it was a... Yeah. What did the woman next have on her <laughs> <laughs> Just here lies so and so. It didn't have any major inscription on it. Don't believe we can read on the site. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, okay, it's, it's a silly example, but it shows how even through that you're trying to perpetuate something of yourself. Yeah, and that desire for perpetuation. Yeah. Um, now, all of this, I'm going to cut it short because we're really going too long now. Um, all of this, this ignorance, this flowing out, um, is the problem. This is what we're dealing with. This is the deepest layer of the problem. So please don't get miserable at this stage about it because this is really the stuff that's really hard to see a lot of the time. And it's almost reflexive, the way that we're engaging with this. Elements of it we can catch ourselves doing. You know, the sensuality, the opinions the um, desire to be in certain ways, you know, we can catch these out. Um, but the very, very deepest level of the ignorance of not wanting to know, by its very nature of not wanting to know, what you're ignoring can't be fully seen at this stage. That it's flowing out, I think, is evidenced by um, something, again, I like to point out, is that the actual literal meaning of Dukkha Niroda, which is the third of the ennobling truths, um, Naroda is usually translated as cessation, yeah, which isn't a bad translation, but literally, etymologically, it means to stop leaking. Yeah. So Naroda means to stop leaking. It goes back to a paddy field culture where you kind of shore it up to stop the water from leaking out of something, and that would be called Naroda. And so when you're talking about stopping leaking, well, you're stopping leaking your effluent onto the world. Yeah. This is what you're doing. You're ceasing to do that. And as a synonym for awakening, somebody who is awakened is referred to as kinasava. Somebody who's brought an end to the defilements, the cankers, or the effluent. So they, they no longer leak onto the world in this way. So in that Naruda, I mean, can you, you can boil it down to sort of a <coughs> greed, delusion, and hatred, sort of the absence of greed. Delusion and hatred, does it? Boil yeah, down to that? Yeah, well, yeah greed, uh, greed, aversion, and hatred, yeah, greed, aversion, and ignorance or delusion are central to what we're leaking onto the world. Right. Yeah. They're not separate faculties, they're not separate, separate factors because delusion and ignorance, of course, are where we're starting from here. Now, to cut this off at this point now, dependent on all of this going on, on the ignorance and the confusion, and all the ways I've tried to describe it, albeit very briefly, then what arises are dispositions. Then we're back to where we started this morning. Sankaras. That's what arises dependent on. So, out of our confusion, we put into play certain character traits. We lay them down. They're not static, they're formed and forming in all the ways that we've spoken about them this morning. So, if you like, this is, being, this is related to what we bring over every moment into every moment from our past. You know, so our past has been influenced by confusional activity, giving rise to certain dispositions as character traits within our personalities, and that's here at this moment in time. In the, uh, the 
second link in the twelve is Sankara. The second link is Sankara. I think I ought to say, here endeth the lesson. Oh, so the outflows aren't are part of a vidya. Pardon? Are the outflows part of a vidya? Oh, the outflows are part of a vidya. This is typical, typical of Buddhism. What it takes, again, is something which you think is, you know, is just ignorant, but ignorance is composed of the asavas. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between saying this is dependent on this, this arises from that, mm. and um, using the terms cause and effect? Because it doesn't actually work for all of the links, actually, if you think about it. You can't, I mean, other than perhaps poetically, it'd be very difficult to say that birth causes old age and death. (laughs) What you can say very effectively is dependent on something being born, old age and death will arise. It's it's a non-deterministic theory of cause and effect, isn't it? Which is something I don't think we even think about. Yeah, I, I, I think I'd also, also um, there's one other aspect, and I can point you in the direction of something to read, if you like, about this. I actually wrote something about this. Um, that it points away from the linearity of cause and effect as well. So you've got a series of dependencies, and actually, although I'm presenting them here in a linear fashion, they all interact with each other. So it's not just dependent on one arises the other, dependent on this, lots of other things arise too. From the Mahayana point of view, ignorance is also the Buddha. There's a story I once heard of some Zen teacher, and he was, and uh, someone said, you know, how can ignorance be the Buddha? And he, he kind of he called over to some kind of young man who's in the temple, and he said, hey, and the young man said, yes, and he said, that's the Buddha. And then he said to this young man, what's the Buddha? And the young man went, huh? He said, that's ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> I like this idea that everything is fundamentally <laughs> the Buddha. Even it's ignorance, it doesn't make it necessarily all, all that much easier to metabolize it and work it through. Well, this is, this is, one, of the area, this is one of the areas we're going to get to, because really what you're talking about being the Buddha is actually being Buddha nature, or possessing Buddha nature. Yeah. And that can be actually, Buddha nature is within certain traditions, uh, not all, but within certain traditions, is actually a synonym for emptiness. Mm. Yeah. So that everything possesses Buddha nature because everything is empty of intrinsic existence. So even the young man has Buddha nature. Mm. The dog has Buddha nature. Is Buddha nature, yeah. Yeah. Will you be continuing or will Rob be picking up the... I will continue this. I think Rob might do his own thing around this, but I I will continue this kind of point by point. I need to leave a lot of space in my pages. <laughs> Sorry, I talk too much. No, 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 no. That was the statement. It was just an, an, that I want to pick up and continue with sure. you. I don't want to have Rob stuff in the middle of your stuff okay. and having to put it up. So that was just an awareness that I need to be organized. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that was not. That was not a statement. <laughs> so we have. A well, just a few minutes, see if there's any real major questions arising from that. One question. Yeah. Um, we talked about the desire to be, which is in Asav. Asava. Asava. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you say also the desire not to be. Well, that comes under a different listing. That comes under the listings of Tanna. And so... So there's Bhava Tanha yeah. and Vibhava Tanha. Okay, and yeah. I don't want to throw us off, but mm-hmm. it always... Conf- 
it's an asava to have to a desire to be, mm. then one would think the desire or not to be is good, but it's not. No. <laughs> not at all. Because it's, it's mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What What you're saying is actually, if you if you think of it as a flow chart, and the asavas flow into our forms of craving, and so they manifest not just as one dimension, which is a desire to be, and that's to be a self actually. And it's also when times get tough, you don't want to be a self. You'd actually like to eradicate the self. And, and the, obviously the really serious part about it, and I'll pick it up much more when we get to it, is suicidal tendencies. Yeah. But isn't it... Oh. <laughs> so saying, actually, that there are conflicting... This is very Freudian, actually, before Freud. It's very conflicting drives within an individual, which is the, the you know, using Freudian language, there's the libidinal drive, which is engaged with life wanting to get on, it's the erotic drive as well, you know, it doesn't necessarily just mean sexuality, it means the, ero, the drive of eros towards all sorts of things, but on the other hand, there's also that other thing that's saying it's all too much all of this is too much and that's the death drive, Thanatos was in this so there is, there is both, there is these conflicting drives within us, in all of our cravings, in fact they're mixed so much so that the desire, for example, to be through sensuality can also be the desire not to be. Yeah. So if you take, for example, somebody who drinks too much, takes drugs, you, know, you can think of this as a sensory indulgence, actually in, uh, part numb. of... Uh, it's become numb. It's become numb, yeah. yeah. So it can be a desire for obliteration yeah, with a loss of self, albeit momentarily. You said that to me the other day about you know, this thing of expansion of self into dissolving into mm. oneness, the other the yeah. flip side of that is yeah. It is, yeah. And that that's again um, the desire to rid oneself of this difficult task of being in this world. Yeah, and that's why I think the Buddha in the early text very much does not offer the consolation and saying, actually in both cases the desire to be, you're trying to perpetuate something that actually you misconceive. And the desire not to be, you try to eradicate something which you misconceive. <laughs> As well. And there is that middle way of actually seeing what's really going on. Not trying to either shore up or eradicate. But just be with how it is. Yeah. That seems almost, almost too easy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.